0: Hey, my name is Jay Warner Wallace, and I'm the author of Cold Case Christianity. I got to tell you, if you're listening to this radio, you know you're in a good place. And I cannot endorse more highly the intellect and the passion of your host. So just enjoy this radio program. Is he a real one radio is the real thing. And Veda, thank you so much for doing the most important work of the kingdom. Hello out there. This is Bobby Conway. You're listening to Is He a Real One Radio, and I'm now passing the baton off to my man Veda. Two shall become one flesh. The only way to understand what Jesus is doing is Jesus is saying male and female is essential to marriage.
1: Yeah, and and, and I and I love that answer, Chris, because Jesus, he he he. wanted to answer that question. He could have just did uh, verse six where he says, there are no longer two, but one flesh, where therefore God has joined together. Let no man separate. If it was only about when two people get married, whoever those two people are, God has joined them together let no man separate. But that's not what he said. Before he even said that, he laid the foundation of, like you said, what marriage is. Is have you not read that he who created them the guy that God had created them from the beginning, he God created them male and female, and God said, Therefore, a man, I'm sorry, and Jesus said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother. So not even just he created the male and female, yeah. it even goes back to he shall leave his father, yeah. male, and his mother. That's right. Male. And hold fast to his wife, and the two yeah. shall become one flesh. It's like he went out of his way mm-hmm. to say, this is the foundation of what marriage is. And now that I have said this to you folks who clearly don't understand, let me tell y'all about um, if marriage should be divorced. The answer is, what God has joined together. Let no man separate. Yes. My goodness.
0: Yes, right. That's so good, and uh, so I, I think there's so much richness. You know, it's Jesus was connecting these really key passages that that hadn't been done before Genesis two and Genesis one, and Paul even did that as well. So it's key to understand marriage in light of Genesis two and in light of Genesis one.
1: Now I'd like to hear your response to the whole one flesh unions being mm-hmm. in different parts of Scripture. So in some of the scriptures that we've both read or just freely kind of mentioned in, in, in our soliloquies, we mentioned that the Bible talks about, you know, being one flesh. Yeah. Now, some of the revisionists, and by the way, if you're listening and watching, when I say revisionists, I, I'm speaking about uh, people who will, who will claim that they're teaching from the Bible, but, right. but using the Bible in a what I believe is a heretical way to say that the Holy Bible supports acting on same-sex attraction, you know, and it's a perversion of scripture, in my opinion. Now teachers will say sometimes is that, you know, well, same-sex relationships can be one-flesh unions. And I'll give you an example, Chris. I'm curious to hear how you respond. So I I got two verses for example. So for one, in Genesis 29, 14, you know, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh and he stayed with him a month. That wasn't in the concept of marriage, but, but that was in the context. Well, I'll, I'll let you uh, respond to it. I can give my thoughts after, but <clears throat> excuse me, but that wasn't a male and a female going into marriage, but the Bible still says uh, my flesh and also 2 Samuel 5.1 Uh, The Bible says, then all the tribes of Israel came to David and Hebron and said, behold, we are your bone and flesh. So a revisionist will say, well, we aren't being consistent because these are two instances that aren't about the Institute of marriage between male and female. Yet the Bible still said one flesh. So, uh, you know, these mainstream Christianity is not being consistent with this whole one flesh thing. How would you respond
0: to that? Yeah. And and that's really great. So Genesis 29, um, where Laban is actually, you know, he's telling him, telling Jacob, you know, this is, so this is not even his son. This is his son in-law. Uh, but he's saying, you know, surely you are, uh, my bone and my flesh. And, um, and then in Gen, uh 2 Samuel 5, this is uh let's see if I'm not mistaken. It is when King uh is and Israel was coming together and King David, that was like at the beginning of his uh kingship, and so they were kind of coming in to you know, say, you know, we're 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 behind you and we're gonna support you. So um, so bone and, and so let's go back to Genesis two, where it says um Adam, so this is, uh, we call this Adam's song or Adam's poem, uh, where it says in Genesis 2, verse 23, then the man, and by the way, man in Hebrew is Adam, uh, or Adam in, in Hebrew. So uh, man, Adam, or, or actually could also mean human, but also could be in the corporate sense, humanity. But but here, then the the man or Adam said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh and she shall be called woman isha in 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 hebrew uh because she was taken uh out of man and um so of course you know people are going to make this argument well you know we see here in genesis that this is it's about kinship so that's uh, you know people are uh, this is not really about complementarity about man, male, or female, uh, but it 's really just about family uh, so the problem with that is it's it 's neglecting obviously Mark chapter ten and Matthew nineteen because I think overall with all these passages, what we need to do is read the Bible canonically amen not just in context, because context could mean I'm just looking at paragraphs. I mean, context could mean that, but it's, it's, uh, it's intertextual. So I'm looking at all the 66 books of the Bible together, not as disjointed books, but as one unified witness. Because notice, never will you hear a uh, revisionist who actually reads the Bible canonically, because I'm really convinced when you read the Bible canonically, and why can we do that? Because it's not written by a bunch of different human authors. They're connected by the Holy Spirit, same Holy Spirit that moved in Moses, also moved in Matthew, and also moved in Paul to record yeah. the word of God. Amen. So therefore, we need to recognize that uh, and read it in light of Mark chapter 10 and Matthew 19, what we talked about before, but this is, this is important. Uh, well, and, I'll, and also say, if this is just about kinship, then why not incest? I mean, if kinship is really an issue, then what's more closer than a brother and a sister marrying? Why? Because it's, it's more than that. Um, it is about sameness and difference. Um, and, and, and so why? what I want to bring up is, though, yes, it says in Genesis 29, Laban to Jacob, uh, you are my bone and you are my flesh. Uh, and same thing with, uh, what was it, Second Samuel um, uh, chapter four or chapter five the uh-huh. uh, same thing where the people of israel where the tribes of israel were saying to david at hebron so that's the beginning of his uh, kingship you know you're you are my um you uh, are my you are my you are my flesh and bone it never actually says that they became one flesh that they were just saying you are my flesh you are my bone there's a big big difference there because uh, what that is that that word is its covenantal language. So there's an Old Testament scholar his name is Walter Brueggemann, and he wrote uh, a, a, an article on this, and, and he was showing, uh, and he believed, and I and I and I also agree with him that this language of bone and flesh is covenantal language, and it's not. And there's different covenants. I mean, uh, so in, in the case of Laban and um, David. And, and and with israel laban and jacob david and, and the tribes of israel what they were saying was they're like we're you know we're kin we're, we're we're family so in genesis 2 what adam is doing is not only saying you're we're family but he's saying we're not only family but you are my wife right do i know that because it further then says that they became one flesh that's that's so important we don't have an other situations where they became one flesh because if they did become one flesh then that's then that's totally different story then but we don't have that in the other they just said you are my bone you are my flesh and that's covenantal language you know say i'm covenanting with you right but also saying that we are kinship or we're like kinship we're like family that's
1: beautifully stated. that's beautifully stated chris i i I was just going to add that uh, and you sort of just, and you really just said it, same flesh isn't necessarily the same as one flesh. Exactly. So so me and my daughter are the same flesh. She is my daughter, mm. but yeah. she and I are not one flesh. My wife and I are one flesh. Glory be to God.
0: Amen. Amen. That's so key because that, that mistake is is made a lot. Yeah. One flesh is a it's actually very important that the biblical writers use throughout the Bible to refer specifically to marriage and nothing else.
1: If you don't mind, I would like to read a quote from Matthew Vines, who mm-hmm. might be the most popular revisionist teacher right now. Uh, there is a wonderful, wonderful dialogue that he did with Sean McDowell. It's great, I recommend that to. Everybody, everybody, it was awesome. Sean McDowell um, certainly did his thing in representing scripture uh, in, in their conversation. But uh, this is a quote from Matthew Vines, and he, uh, he says something about Genesis 2. And this quote is, uh, Matthew Vines says, what's remarkable about Genesis 2, despite the need for procreation, the text doesn't focus on the gender difference between Adam and Eve, Rather, it focuses on their similarity as human beings. Now, mind you, Matthew Vines is a proponent of the of the idea that Scripture does support a monogamous marriage, same sex uh, marriage. Mm-hmm. So, so he, so th- this is a quote from him, and I read it again. What's remarkable about Genesis two? Despite the need for procreation, the text doesn't focus on the gender differences between Adam and Eve, rather it focuses on their similarity as human beings. How would you respond to that?
0: Yeah, um, I mean, I, I think a lot of what I said before, you know, if, if it's all about similarity, then why not incest? What You know, incest is called out. So there's clearly this uh, sameness and distinction um, and, and, and actually, I, w- I would go to in uh, Genesis two, where it says two uh, verse eighteen. Then the Lord God said, "It is not good that the man should be alone." And I'm going to pause there because sometimes that's used as a, as a hammer uh, to those people who are single. Mm-hmm. Being alone uh, doesn't then mean that you have to be lonely, you know, and and also if if that truly is a command uh, that it is or if it means if this is specifically just talking about marriage only and that it is bad to uh, be single or not as good to be single then jesus was not good so that's important in there but um, even though most people do marry but uh, and and i could be single and not alone i mean that's why i need the family of god however but then it says i will make him a helper fit for him so that word fit for him is actually one compound hebrew word it's a cute hebrew word connecto connecto is uh, a word that is not only talking about sameness but it's actually talking about their opposite so it's an opposite fit for him so these are actual opposites but they kind of match because they're opposites so that's really key that word there and so uh you know of course. Uh, Matthew is not getting getting to there, and and it's really important. Matthew Vines is a sharp guy, you know. He went to Harvard, uh, but it's also important to note that he actually never really studied the Bible. I'm not saying that he never read the Bible or never read read a lot of books, because obviously when when you read his book, it's you know God and the Gay Christian. Which by the way, if you're interested, you don't have to read his book. Um, I reviewed it. Christianity Today asked me to review his book and just read that. Uh, also, the, the, you know, the video <laughs> is very good, but you don't have to read all that. But uh, he, he's well read, but he's never actually went to, went to Bible college or seminary. Yes, he went to Harvard, but only for three semesters. He never even finished, uh, graduated, um, which is why it's interesting. People say, you know finally, a scholarly book on, and it's like, I wouldn't call that a scholarly book. I think he's a good writer. I think he's bright right uh, but he's basically just rehashing what others have done he he really relies on James Bronson a lot which uh, I think is problematic mainly because he's he doesn't really hold to inerrancy both of them and they don't really work uh, read the Bible canonically but how I would really respond to that is again I'm gonna say it again we need to read the Bible canonically specifically that uh, Jesus connects not just genesis 2 by by itself see it's so easy to isolate a text away from not only context but also the rest of the canon because why do we read need to read the bible canonically because i use scripture to interpret scripture Hmm. but to isolate a text and then once you isolate that text it's so easy to deconstruct it and that's exactly what Matthew Vines is doing. He's not reading Genesis 2 in light of what? Genesis 1, in light of what? Mark chapter 10, in light of Matthew 19, where there's this clear connection. Jesus himself made that connection or that marriage from the beginning is a male and a female. And uh, so I, that's, I think that's really important because uh, when you don't read the Bible canonically, you're going to, I, I tell people, reading the Bible canonically is like putting guardrails on your hermeneutics. When you don't have those guardrails, you're going to fall off the cliff into false. Yes.
1: Now, if if you don't mind, I would actually like to um, pull up a chart from your other book, because mm. speaking about, uh, you know, reading the Bible canonically, you have a chart of uh, Romans 1 and Genesis 1. Can, can I pull this up and you can tell us what we're looking at? Okay. So yeah. let me- I'm gonna share my screen, and I'll let you just walk us through, definitely uh, what what this is.
0: And this is a good example of of then reading the Bible canonically, because uh, so so this is getting to Romans one, and that's why so I'm gonna give a little back backstory here. Um, so Romans one is uh, actually the, the the only passage that addresses lesbian relationships, but of course it also addresses uh, male same sex relationships. Uh, But the the progression of the argument, because I think it's also important to understand the progression of the argument. So after uh, Romans 1, Paul does an introduction, and then starting in Romans 18, he begins, and Paul never minces his words. He just lays it out, and he says, uh, he's talking about um, how the wrath of God is coming down on those who, uh, in all ungodliness, and they basically exchange... Uh, you know, God for a lie and they began worshiping idols. So what, what Paul is doing is addressing idolatry that actually all humanity, we turn to idols and we can all say, that's so true. <laughs> we totally agree with that. But then he goes on and he kind of then goes from broad that we're all idolatry to, and he, sp- he picks up a very specific verse because of course, God hands us over to our lusts and, our, and and this is not just talking about sexual lust, but all our sinful desires, because the word, and this is important, the word for lust in, in Greek is the same word for desire. So it's context that helps us know, is this talking about sinful desire or not? So you can just say, God handed us over to our desires, sinful desires in our hearts of impurity. And then it goes on to chapter 1. Uh, of Romans 1, verse 26. Then God handed them over to, to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are un, contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their. Era. So kind of the argument behind this has to do with how people say, well, you know, we're talking about natural, you know, this is talking about, you know, people who are just consumed with passion so much that they then, uh, uh, they, they then are, are so inflamed with passion that they go from having sex with women to then having sex with men. The problem with that is it's not reading the Bible canonically. So right here, uh, what uh, Veda has put up here is this incredible um, example of reading the Bible canonically because we have eight specific examples. So we have um, the word human, which is anthropos. And, and, and if, if you are maybe scratching your head and you're like, but wait a second, that's the word for human in greek why is it under the genesis you know column because isn't the bible originally written in hebrew you're right, <laughs> right. So, <laughs> genesis was originally written in hebrew but about 200 300 years before jesus the hebrew old testament was translated into greek we call that the septuagint yeah and actually it's a septuagint that the new testament writers relied on more the new testament church in first century uh the church they actually were reading the greek uh translation of the hebrew bible not and and part of that was because many of them were 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 going they were gentiles they didn't know they were greek they didn't know how to read the hebrew bible so they relied more on the greek septuagint can i
1: unpack that real can can i unpack that real quick before you go into it so what, what chris is talking about is the old testament that the New Testament writers had access to and were likely reading, okay? So the Old Testament, 39 books of the Old Testament, yes, Paul read it, Paul knew it, uh, Matthew, Peter, all of them, they knew it. They were likely reading the Greek translation, just like how most of us listening are are reading the English translation of the Bible. They were reading a Greek translation of the Old Testament, of the hebrew text and that is called the septuagint so that is why we see uh these different um you know these different dialects here and that is what chris is breaking down when he's explaining what paul was using what paul was thinking etc when he was using romans 1 to refer to genesis 1.
0: and and we actually know that for certain because the new testament writers when they would quote the old testament they actually quoted from the Septuagint. I mean, that was easier, you know, because as they're right. writing in Greek, they would just take a, a translation of the Old Testament that was already accepted, uh, and they would just quote it and and put it in the New Testament. So that's 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 where we know, but and that's significant because what you find then is Paul. He's quoting um, from. He's pulling these eight times key words from Genesis one twenty six and twenty seven, and he's drawing it and he's pulling it into romans 1 1 23 26 and 27 so why is that significant well anytime a biblical writer does that we call that intertextual illusions he's not necessarily quoting an entire verse but he's making very very like this is unmistakable like you can't sometimes it could be a, a word or two then you could argue well it could be just a flu it could be a coincidence this is no coincidence at all no coincidence that Paul would be there so specific in pulling eight times very specific and, and you'll find sometimes where it's you know for livestock animals it's a different greek word but it, they're so close as it is that it's, it's pretty much the same why we always have to ask then why the reason and why g why paul in his argument for romans was going back to genesis and again i'm going to pause here just as jesus went back to genesis in his you know in his defense of marriage with the pharisees in matthew 19 and mark chapter 10 paul was doing the same thing so he was elevating and saying and this is you know so when paul is saying what's natural he's not pulling from greek philosophy he's not pulling from this you know uh, this uh, this concept of natural law what he was doing from natural is, you know, or according to nature is what is according to God's created order in Genesis. And what is God created order in Genesis at the very, very bottom, male and female when it comes wow. to sex and marriage. It's it's just like, it, you can't really deny this. I have never, ever, ever, ever heard a single revisionist who actually bring this up. I mean, this is... you. <laughs> Not deny this because if you actually bring it up, you wouldn't be a riv- you wouldn't be a revisionist, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Amen. Man,
1: that was so beautiful. I mean, when I was uh, you know, studying your stuff, and I came across this, it was like honestly, man, I got, kind of got teary-eyed at just how. I mean, yes, it's a great defense of of the true word of God, but it also helps bring out the beauty of the holy spirit right you know as as holy as the holy spirit is guiding paul and referring to to genesis written by moses and and it's just like wow it's just i can just see your personality your fingerprints all on this holy spirit it was just it's just really really powerful when you look at scripture for what it is that's what i love about being an 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 apologist don't get me wrong i do christian apologetics because i'm a former atheist, and I like to defend the gospel, Amen. but sometimes it does. Of eyes,
0: that's like, wow, God, yeah, this yeah. is
1: what you were saying. Exactly. Like,
0: wow, yeah, because you know, you know, and, and I'll have to be honest, you know, e- even as a Bible teacher and someone who who preaches the gospel, there are sometimes in Scripture where it's like, you know, I am just ninety nine percent, you know, certain or ninety five percent certain of this, And and uh or you know let's say eschatology or something like that it's like i'm you know 80 percent or 85 percent or whatever it is but you know other times it, because i mean it's even the the uh, the apostles doubted right matthew 28 you know the great commission what happened we, we never talk about what, what like happened They said and they doubted and then right. jesus goes into the great commission so i love that we missed that part so doubt isn't like a really bad wicked thing it's it's actually part of human nature but we sometimes doubt but this Looking at that, those eight right. times, there is no doubt. I mean <laughs> accurate, I mean I get goosebumps thinking about just like you you can't you can't wiggle around and try to do all these mental just just go to the word of God and read the bible canonically and you have to catch these beautiful i mean actually i love seeing these intertextual echoes and, and the only way to catch these is you got to know the bible really really well or another little secret um, i don't have a, my study bible here but in you know if you have a study bible in, in my study bible oftentimes they have these columns here where they have all these kind of you know numbers and stuff and then they have these footnotes. I mean, if you have a study Bible, it could be this big, where it's kind of like giving some commentary, and that's really good to read. But oftentimes, there in the middle, that's the intertextual echoes. And so you 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 actually, it's it's pretty amazing. Like you read those connections, and you see, oh, like there's this, this biblical writers like 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 drawing from you know Leviticus, or you know this New Testament authors you know drawing from Isaiah or whatever, and. They, the the biblical writers were just swimming in the word of god they were saturated with it so they're always kind of like and it's of course it's the holy spirit doing that but connecting and i say intertextuality reading the bible canonically It is actually building this beautiful tapestry of like connect the dots. You know, we as a kid we like to connect the dots on you know when you go to the you know right you know right right? it's connect the dots. This is this is a divine connect the dots, building beautiful tapestry that if we don't catch the intertextuality, we're missing out on the beauty of the word of God.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And and when we read canonically and read responsibly, mm-hmm. we will be able to connect those dots in an authentic way, not in ways where heretical cults and groups like the Hebrew Israelites, who mm-hmm. they'll say they're connecting dots, but they'll just say, I'm reading from Jeremiah five and then just go to Isaiah two and then go to Acts chapter four and right, never that, connect that, anything. They but, just
0: group texting yeah, <laughs> right. yeah. That, that that ain't reading the Bible canonically, that's just yeah. and taking things out of context,
1: <laughs> right, right and making your own uh, yeah. you know, yeah. your own religion yeah. over there to try to make it make sense. right, right you know exactly. so there is a difference now i got I got like two more for you. I know I'm asking <laughs> you some really challenging questions, man. I appreciate you being right. patient with me. uh so I got two more uh, yeah. are, are you okay if we go over yeah. the uh, Saddam in Genesis 19? Yeah. All right, so I, I won't the chapter's too long, so I'll just try to summarize it and get uh Dr. Yuan's response to this. So in Genesis 19, it's a pretty controversial uh biblical narrative, and this is a story well where Lot, the nephew of Abraham, is in the city of Saddam mm-hmm. and takes in two angels of God for the night. All right. Now, when the angels get to his house. The men of Saddam surround Lot's house to demand that he bring out the angels so that they could be intimate with yep. them. Okay, now this is a demand for sex, a demand for male sex. Mm-hmm. Why do I bring this up? Is because. Historically, there have been people who have used this scripture as something to condemn uh, homosexual behavior or acting on same sex attraction. Now, the revisionist response to that will say, well, if you continue to read your Bible, they'll 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 do a Christopher Yuan uh, uh, okay. <laughs> impersonation and say, "If you read it canonically, you will see." And I'm not trying to be funny or. Oh just, yeah, no, no, I wanna, I, you're I exactly do, right, though. No, yeah, yeah, right. yeah. I, <laughs> you know, yeah. they will say, "If you if you read it canonically, you'll see that if you stay in your Old Testament, mm-hmm. for example, in Ezekiel, I'll go to Ezekiel 16:49. Yep. They will mention the sins of the city of Saddam." okay? And when they mention the sins of the city of Saddam, they do not mention homosexual behavior. So I'll just read it. It says, Ezekiel 1649 says, behold, this was the guilt of your sister, Saddam. She had her daughters and pride, excess of food and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. So a revisionist might go, okay, well, we just read you know the genesis chapter and we heard what happened but that was an attempt to force sex to force male sex that is not a monogamous relationship that is not a faithful same sex relationship where they are uh, are are married and proof of that is when this story is alluded to in Ezekiel chapter sixteen, and they mention the sins of the city. They don't mention homosexual behavior. Why don't they mention the the sin of homosexual behavior? Because that is not a sin. But what is a sin is pride. What is a sin is being greedy. And how would you respond?
0: Yeah, that? yeah. And I'm going to add to uh, the the revisionist argument. They'll also say, yeah, read the Bible canonically because every time you see the word Sodom occur in the old testament and the new testament which is i think 27 different times which is a lot think about that 27 right, yeah. times the biblical writers uh, outside the book of genesis we're not even talking about genesis we're talking about outside the book of genesis sodom is mentioned 27 times that's a lot and then the uh, religious will say they'll add to this you know like you say you know read the bible canonically you'll see every time that sodom is mentioned not once they will say religious will say does it mention homosexuality doesn't mention it directly so that makes you be like whoa you know because that that, that takes a lot of christians off guard they're like i have no idea how to respond that sounds like they're reading the bible canonically it sounds like they're reading contextually what's going on here so it's really important uh i i'm going to just you mention ezekiel 16 because that's that's the one that that kind of that, that is often mentioned uh and is uh and it's very specific too, because it says, "Behold, this was the sin of your sister Sodom." So it's like this—you know, the ears perk up, and you gotta listen, and then it lists all these things like pride, excessive food, you know, all these things that sound like hospitality. However, you know, though revisionists they say they're reading the Bible canonically and contextually, if you go to the very next verse. Mm-hmm in verse 50 so this is ezekiel 16 chapter 16 verse 49 the very next verse it says they were haughty okay so prideful so that kind of might feed into the revisionist argument but then it says and did an abomination before me so i know that the listeners and watchers have heard that word abomination before Unfortunately, it's sometimes used uh, might be overused specifically against those who uh, you know are are guilty of homosexual sin and um, and and their thought that that it says that they are an abomination. I want to be very clear that here it does not say that uh, you know that they are abomination; it says that they did an abomination that 's very important, but the word abomination. Okay. And also, it's also important to look at Proverbs 16, where it says pride is an abomination. It says that uh, lying is an abomination, causing dissension is abomination. So let's not just narrow it down to homosexuality, but anyway, here it says did an abomination. Um, And and so what, what we see here, that the word abomination is very, it's a strong word, but in most situations, it's in the plural. Do not commit these abominations, and very specifically in Leviticus, where it's talking about, don't do uh, as all the other nations have done around you and all their abominations, plural. It's very, it's not as common where then the Bible will call one thing an abomination, So then that brings up what is called an abomination, not just that. So this is where we do a little bit of intertextuality because it's not just the word, but it's that Hebrew verb did, or sometimes sometimes some translations say committed an abomination. When we put that verb and that direct object of abomination together, that really narrows the scope. Never does the Old Testament call rape that it, it's committed an abomination, nor does it call inhospitality as committing an abomination. But what does the Bible call, uh, what sin is called as committing an abomination? We'll turn to Leviticus 18, 22 and 2013. So in if you remember, at the very, very beginning where we started, I said, this is all, so think about like spokes of a wheel, Leviticus is in the middle, and all these other are pointing back to Leviticus where it says, in Leviticus and I'm just gonna per- t- turn there uh, to Leviticus let's just go to 2013 and it says if a man lies with a male as with a woman both of them have committed an abomination these words are right next to each other uh, in in the Hebrew in Leviticus and in Ezekiel so what because you know we see all the other stuff even gang rape is not called in the Old Testament as committing an abomination Right. But same-sex behavior is called that. So here, what Ezekiel is doing, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he is saying the sin of Sodom is the sin that we find in Leviticus. So he's connecting the dots here and showing this is what the sin is. So that's how we really can, can understand this passage. But it even goes further than that, and I'm just going to mention this real quick, because Genesis 19, people like to like make this about, oh, it's not really about uh, sexual morality is about inhospitality. The problem is reading the entire chapter I mean man this is this is this is really good because <laughs> at the end of the chapter we have where I mean it's exodus but in and end of the chapter of Genesis 19 you have this crazy story that we don't get taught in Sunday school I mean imagine teaching your you know <laughs> you know what I mean imagine <laughs> Over that, which is okay. If I had a five-year-old, I was like, "Let's skip over that." But uh, as as adults, we should not skip over that because just it's in the, the Bible, man. It's in, in the Bible. Bible. It's in there. Yes, it's in there. <laughs> and we have. I mean, it is crazy. People cringe when they actually read this. It's a Lot. The dad with his two daughters, right, because Lot's wife turned into a pillar of salt. We know that salt because so it's only Lot and his two daughters. And they were supposed to go to the cities of Zoar, but Lot is so afraid that he then goes to the caves. So they're living in the caves and the daughter's like, man, you know, there's no men around. We want to pass, pass on our name because, of course, in the Old Testament, it's all about having children and passing down your name and inheritance and et cetera. So they're like, we need to have children. Well, there's no men around. Oh, except for dad. So what do they do? They get dad drunk. Older daughter goes in one night. They get, and then the next night happens, and they get dad drunk again. Younger daughter goes in. Tell me, how in the world could virgin daughters? That's important because Genesis nineteen eight says that they did not know a man; they were virgins. Mm-hmm. How could virgin daughters come up with such a grotesque example? If not, they were living in a city where sexual immorality was normalized. Mm. This chapter, Genesis 19, is oozing with sexual immorality. That's the only way to understand Genesis 19. So when people, and I even hear evangelical scholars who say, oh, you know, we should not mention Genesis 19, read it. I'm not saying that it it is the proof text or it's only, because to, to actually, to understand Genesis 19, we need Leviticus but I'm not, but we should not just throw it out because actually it is still relevant, but why? Because we read the Bible canonically. Wow.
1: Now, so Leviticus 18 was the very last one, you know, mm. so you see how the questions and stuff is kind of going and building up yeah. to that, and yeah. you you t- you touched on it quite a bit there, you know, but I, one thing that I'm, I'm, I'm curious about it. Some will say, well, okay, well, I don't hear it's other things in Leviticus, like eating shrimp and mixing fabrics yep. that uh, that don't hold today. So why would the uh, homosexual act uh,
0: still hold today? That's right. That's right. Because as I said before, you know, you got the bicycle wheel with Leviticus in the middle and the spokes going out. But of course, I mean, if, if Leviticus doesn't hold true as a law that we should you know obey today because if we're going to be honest there are stuff in the old testament that we don't it doesn't look like we're obeying or doesn't look like we're following you know so that's why to be a christian you also need to understand the old testament why are there some laws that are there but we're not following and and, right. and that's really important uh so Le- leviticus uh and, and why we don't follow some laws is for example the food laws uh, some foods are unclean. Well, why, are we, why do we follow those? Well, we read the Bible canonically. Like I'm gonna I'm gonna beat this like a dead horse, but it's do to it, not? do it. I love it. I but love it. I to. always
1: say I, before you close to that part, I want you to know I got I got two uh, slogans on this show, yes. and one of them is you may or may not be reformed, but we should all be informed. Okay, mm-hmm. so if we're gonna read the Bible, let's be informed.
0: Mm. Over the head with it. I love it. Amen. So we have Acts chapter 10. This is is one of the key verses to understanding about uh, uncleanness and the laws of, of, of uncleanness and unclean foods where we have um, Peter gets the vision dropping from heaven. It's, you know, it's a white sheet and there's all these unclean foods. I always joke. I say, you know, what we see is a big Chinese buffet. You know what I mean? All unclean foods. <laughs> so it comes down. <laughs> and and peter's like you know you know he doesn't want to eat it because it's unclean but the voice from heaven says don't call anything unclean that i've made clean this is so key it is because of jesus that not only are we now able to eat bacon hallelujah but we also (laughs) but we also are able to because acts 10 is actually not about unclean foods i mean it's that's not the main point. The main point is that the Gentiles, which is you and me, you know, because I'm going to assume you're not Jewish, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> unless um, I'm
1: secretly a Hebrew Israelite and I think the whole thing is about me. But I'm not, so <laughs> it's all good.
0: <laughs> you know, then that means you know those are Gentiles. Me and you, we're we're outside. We're unclean. We we have no. Mm. We're not coming to the presence of God, but Ooh. it's of Jesus who tore the veil that now us who are unclean can come into the presence of God. That is what Acts 10 10 is about. So that's, that's why we know that there are some things in the Old Testament that we don't follow, not because Jesus has come to abolish the law, He's come to fulfill the law. Goodness. So all these unclean things we don't we don't do. So so then back to Leviticus 18, because yes, that's so important. Why are some there? Some things that we follow and uh, and don't follow well. It depends on is this unclean. And I do, do need to be clear. Um, like all the things that uh, that are talked about here uh, in the Old Testament, they all make you unclean. Sin also makes you unclean. So the difference is, is this like a temporary uncleanness or is this a permanent uncleanness to the point of where where you need to be punished? You know, this is a moral, because a moral sin also makes you unclean. So it doesn't make sense. Like you can be unclean, but it's not necessarily uh, like a moral sin, like murder, where that's that's something that it's not like you're just unclean temporarily. Uh, So how do we know the difference? So there's an example that sometimes people mention is, Um, in ancient israel when a man would have sex with his wife and then he would be unclean so how do we know whether that's a moral thing or not today that carries through well it's because his penalty was he was unclean for seven days it's a temporary uncleanness that can be reversed going through this process of cleansing so then how do we know that whether this is a, a moral thing or a temporary uncleanness well it has to do with the penalty what's a penalty for same-sex relationship not unclean for seven days it's wow. Death. it's wow death. that's a big difference unclean for seven days compared to death I say there's a little bit of difference there <laughs> you know so th- that point just but I would even say that's not the only evidence we have the, the the bigger evidence is again reading the Bible canonically if a New Testament writer reconfirm something that is written in the Old Testament, He's pull, the New Testament author is pulling it from the Old Testament to the, to the New Testament and to the, us of the New Covenant, then that means that law applies to us as people of the New Covenant today. Do we have that? What do you think? We do. 1 <laughs> Corinthians 6 and 1 uh, Timothy 1 they, 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 I, I mentioned them both because they both share the same word and it's a Greek word, it's a compound word arsenikoitai arsenikoitai, why is that significant? because when you break those two words apart because here, Reviticus, what they'll say is that word, is a compound word does not occur anywhere else in the, in, the, in the Bible, in the New Testament and it doesn't even occur uh, in any extant uh, extra-biblical literature in the first century that is true. However, the mistake that they're making is, first of all, if it's a compound word, let's break those two words apart, Arsane and koite, Arsane meaning male, koite meaning bed, and see if those two words occur anywhere else and anything that might be relevant to uh, first Corinthians and first Timothy and guess what we have remember you, you spent that time explaining to us about Septuagint Let's just look in the Septuagint. and see if those two words are saying in koite, occur in the Septuagint They do Wow six different times Wow one, every one of those six times, you know what it means? It means a person who lies with a male who has sex with the male and those two times you'll never ever guess where to, of those six two of them which is really important what are those two where do we find that Our saying in koite leviticus 18 22, and mm. 2013 so paul inspired by the holy spirit was pointing back to leviticus and saying that this law from the old testament I'm pulling it forward because it not only applied to the people of the old covenant, but it's also applying to us of the new covenant that breaking this is uh, is sin. This, this is not a an unclean issue. This is not something that is just doing, you know, doing with, uh, you know, uh, making us uh, uh, like a ritual impurity issue, this is sin. Because Paul not only reiterated it once in First Corinthians, he did it twice in First Timothy.
1: Man, so m- mind you all, everyone who's listening to this, and uh, Dr. Yuan, please feel free to correct me if I say anything wrong. But we are listening to a person answering these questions where we're diving deep into scripture, what does this mean? When did they use this word? When other times in the Bible was this word used? So that we can really know what the Holy Spirit was superintending these men to say, right? So we can, what does God mean when, uh, when he said this? Mind you, we're listening to a man who, was, who read the Bible and probably in his flesh would have loved to see that it was okay to act on same-sex attraction. Right. Not probably,
0: but, Definitely.
1: Right. <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll use me flesh. as an example. Look, somebody asked me a question before. Um, you know, someone asked me a question before about me and my marriage and they were like, OK, well, the Bible says that the that the marital bed is undefiled. So you and your wife can do whatever y'all want. Right. He was basically asking, like, if we could have threesomes and stuff. And I said, listen, my flesh would love to read into the text, you know, and be like, yeah, what's up, you know, but that's not, that's not, that's not what the word says, and if we seek truth, if we study to show thyself approve, if we pray on God, not pray on God's word, you know, that's what we don't want to do, you know, (laughs) but if we pray as we study God's word, and, and really receive the beauty and what God did when he left the 66 love letters. He don't got to explain anything to us. He didn't have to do it, but he did it anyway. And we can see the beauty if we just let God speak. If we just let the text say what it says and we receive it, it will transform us. It has transformed me and it's still transforming me and it's still transforming me. And again, if y'all listening to this, yes, the primary topic of this interview and this conversation is sexuality we want to know how to uh defend biblical truth with compassion but with truth mm. and we're listening to someone who's a great uh uh testimony uh, uh, about that but also our walk in christ in general y'all like mm. our walk in christ in general i chris uh, I, I know that same-sex attraction isn't you know um always the same thing or or even usually the same thing when it comes to uh people who have who struggle with gender identity Mm. but I interviewed someone recently by the name of Walt Hire. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of him
0: of course I do know yeah
1: Yeah, I I I love Walt Hire. and man he made me uh I didn't cry on camera not that I would have if I did but when we stopped recording man I just started crying man like the story was just so powerful And it's just really about how God can change us, particularly with with his story, because he struggled with his gender identity for most of his life, underwent surgery to live life as a woman, officially for eight years, got to know Jesus, detransitioned back to a man. Now, yes, his story, his testimony, and his teachings will help us defend against those who want who, who, who want to support transgenderism. But also, if you are feeling defeated by sin, if you are feeling like I am a slave to this thing or that thing over there or those things over there, I will never defeat this thing. I've prayed on it, and I still ain't fixed. I've tried to do it. I went to Bible studies. I still ain't fixed. I got a counselor, it still ain't fixed. I went to a pastor, it still ain't work. Listen, the power of the Holy Spirit can change and transform any of us. I love the hymn that says, I need thee, oh, I need thee every hour. So if you messed up last hour, okay, okay. Focus on God this hour. And if you did good last hour, but here's a whole nother hour coming up and you need the Lord right now as well my
0: goodness. Amen. You you Amen that, that's so good. And, and you know, I, I think, you know, we have to realize the power of the word of God that, that um, he, you know, that, that transformation is real, but that does not mean that he's going to give us a life of ease. My so God, in, you know, in, uh, and I've, I know that there's going to be people that are, that are watching. I mean, you have a lot of people that, that come and watch your videos, praise the Lord. That there's going to be someone who's wrestling themselves, and I want to tell them, you're not alone. Do not be believe the lie of the enemy that you can't tell anyone. You know, I think one of Satan's best weapons is isolation. Mm. And I know, in the Asian American community, in the African American community, in the Latin community, we have a tendency to put on our masks and don't tell anyone we have to be like perfect you know and because because there's a sense you know in the non-western culture we're, we're a bit more shame based i mean there's good and bad from that right. but we cannot believe the lie satan loves to work in darkness so i'm i would encourage you email me you know email uh someone to tell some email your pastor you know email veda let let someone know there's going to be freedom in that once you're able to be transparent you don't have to be like me i'm not there's i'm not suggesting that people be like me but you have to have a handful of people that are walking with you that are also ideally part of your local church if you're not a part of a local church why not be a member and get involved and go locally and i know it's hard now but you need to have people that are walking alongside you to help you to be able to mortify the flesh as, as the Puritans talk about. John Owen loved to talk about mortifying the flesh, putting to death the deeds of the body uh, because we're not meant to do that alone. We're meant to do that in community. What community? The local church, the body of Christ. So um, you know, I just want to encourage those that are listening that you know, you're not alone, that, that there is freedom, but freedom does not mean that you're not going to struggle, that you're not going to have to fight
1: what would you say to someone who, who, who doesn't uh, have same sex attraction, but they want to minister to someone who does, you know, what are some, how do we say they listen to this video and they kept replaying certain things when we were talking about certain scriptures and they're like, okay, I got it. Yeah. This makes sense. But how do I use this knowledge, you know, with, compassion you know i mean like what are some things that you would say uh, to someone who who's in that boat who wants to minister to someone who does have same sex attraction
0: yeah there's a few things that i would say we should not do like do not compare this with other sins like murder uh, you know, or pedophilia, you know, some because sometimes Christians will do that because we see, you know, of course, we see all sin is equal, but, you know, when you're not a Christian, you don't see all sins or all bad things as equal. So that can be offensive to someone. Um, I, I would just not shy away from God's truth uh, but we have to speak it in terms that unbelievers can understand. I would also be uh, not use the word lifestyle or choice when you're talking to unbelievers. It makes sense for us because it's it's it is sinful behavior, and we recognize that, and we're separating that from identity. Uh, but I, I would ha- I would talk to people about who are we, who am I, who are you. Um, You know, are we someone apart from our sexuality? These are important questions to have. But at the end of the day, even our conversation on sexuality, I see that really as secondary to Mm. what? It's secondary to the more important question of God. If we focus so much upon morality, then that's just legalism. Then that's just talking about behavior modification. Following Jesus is not about a list of do's and don'ts it's about God first, it's about following Jesus first, and it's following Jesus and having the Holy Spirit indwelling in us that then enables us to live for God, and enables us to please God and obey God, not the other way around. So I would say, you know, in your desire to know your friend, I would uh, just, you know, focus on just... I mean, and this gets right to what what you do, Veda. It's it's just plain apologetics. I see apologetics and evangelism as like hand in hand, Amen. not separate. They're they I mean, we why do we do apologetics? It's for evangelism. Why do we evangelism? You know, to to help defend the truth. And so, I mean, it's it's they're hand in hand. But the goal is not st- st- um, focusing on the particulars. It has to start here. Like I would tell someone, you know, you know, that asks us the question, "Do you think this is sin?" Well. You don't even believe in God yet. So what does it matter what God thinks? So let's first talk about God because that's much more important. We have to start there. Who is God? Is there a God, the existence of God? And then we talk about the reality of his son, Jesus, because that then points to uh, the savior. Because how can we talk about our our sin if we don't talk about the savior for sinners?
1: My God. So is there anything that, maybe I didn't ask that, that you would like to like mention, or maybe something that we did say already, but you would kind of like to highlight as it relates to this uh, discussion of sexuality and holy sexuality. My goodness, I love that term. You need to coin it, please. It's <laughs> yeah.
0: incredible, man. Well, I think we have to have these conversations. Don't, you know, as I said before, if you're struggling with this, this is all about just about everyone. We need to have these conversations about holy sexuality. We need to pull people in. Why? Because I think... That this is one of the most pressing issues of the day. And if we're, we can talk about this, we can talk about that. Why are we talking about one of the most pressing issues of the day and doing it redemptively? That's why I love the term holy sexuality because it's redeeming what the world is distorting. And so have these conversations um, in the back of my book, both of them actually, uh, is that study guide. So I, I was really intentional because I knew we have to do this in community and go through this and have these discussions with people. And let's say, let's just read this and talk about it because we, we have to be equipped. If we're not discussing with each other, how can we discuss with someone who's not even a Christian? We need to be discussing right. these together so we can be sharpening each other and preparing each other. So when we do have these conversations, not if, but when we have these conversations with the unbelievers, because believe me, they're gonna ask us, we will be better equipped and better prepared. But the problem is we're not doing it all. We're not inviting other believers to have this conversation together. And then when we are asked by unbelievers, we're caught flat footed.
1: Yeah, and also, you know, I, I think Chris said it. So in this book, which I highly recommend, you know, in the, in the back, there is a study guide, you know, that's a, a number of weeks. How many weeks is yeah, it? eight weeks eight 8 week study guide you know so if you listen to this if you listen to this interview and you go wow they said some really um interesting stuff you know never really thought about that or maybe i did think about that but that was helpful his entire book is helpful for a numerous reasons you know chris is what uh certainly one of the best out there who teaches biblical truth in this area and teaches with love without compromising the truth you know, it's um, it's it's, it's really incredible stuff um, to God be all the glory. God is using you, my friend, and I'm grateful that he's using you. And I sincerely pray that you're encouraged in all that you're doing and and all that you can continue to do, because, you know, this is a great work. I know you blessed me, you know, in this conversation. And I'm certain you blessed others, my brother.
0: Oh, thank you so much, Veda. It's been a joy to be on.
1: Uh, so where can people find you? Uh. Let's shout out your other books as well, because you know this is the most recent one. But let's just shout out everything, so people can go crazy and hopefully just get everything.
0: Yeah. So I usually tell people to uh, to start with my first book. It's my story. I mean, that's why you know I always lay that down first, so people know why am I speaking on this. I kind of have, you know, that gives me street cred because I've been there. Uh, So out of far country, uh, (laughs) you know, I gotta have that, you know, authority. So uh, my first book, Out of a Far Country. Uh, and the subtitle is a, a Gay Son's Journey to God, I'm sorry, uh, a, a Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope. So actually, I wrote it with my mom, kind of cool. So she wrote chapter one, I wrote chapter two, she wrote chapter three. So it's alternating chapters, interwoving narratives. And it's really unique because, uh, I mean, this was written almost 10 years ago and and people are finding hope because I, I really don't know of many books uh, that it's parent and prodigal where they write. Right. There. So it's just given hope. We wanted to, give hope i i think about my first book uh, that i wrote with my mom as a book for the heart Hmm. and it just opens you up and it's it's my mother's story is just i mean it's awesome i mean if you think my story is awesome you got to read her part it's it's phenomenal and it just disarms you uh but then my new book holy sexuality in the gospel is for the head and for the hands like i never separate head and hands because theology is not just about head knowledge i I tell people like if if you think theology leads to apathy, that's actually bad theology. Good theology, rich theology that just blows our mind about this awesome, awesome God that compels you to action. Good theology, like drives you out of your seat to go. I'm going to share this with someone. I have to. It's just so amazing. That's good theology. That's the theology that we. Have. So my, you know, my 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 second book, you know, Holy Sexuality in the Gospel. It's really a it's really a theology of sexuality, helping with the head first that then compels us you know to do with the hands because too often we hear people oh we just need to love more and I cringe a little bit because love is one of the most distorted words that That's we a have today most misunderstood and most misused but I don't think the problem is that we need to be more loving I think the real problem is what does your love look like Ooh. so that is where my book comes in to help us ground our love in what truth Love and truth are not dichotomy. That's a false dichotomy. Actually, love is grounded in truth. First Corinthians 13, what does it say? Love rejoices in truth. So love is grounded. It has love has to have like something that foundation. That the foundation is truth. So that's why my book is, is there to do that. Um, but I can be found, my website is just Christopher Yuan Y-U-A-N.com. And I'm there on Twitter and on Facebook as well. Just Christopher Yuan.
1: Amen. Well,
0: as I always say and
1: ask at the end of the show, is he a real one? Yes, he is. And the he that we're talking about is Jesus, y'all. Praise be the Lord. Amen.